Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Ochlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So today, our guest is Dr. Joseph Forpicelli. He is a world-renowned scientist clinician, and his research led to many discoveries about addiction treatment, but one of his well-known discoveries is that of naltrexone to treat alcohol addiction. So he's going to talk about the history of that how that came to be, and how naltrexone can help someone who's struggling with alcohol addiction reduce their cravings and start to build a meaningful, purposeful life with the help of naltrexone as one of the tools in their toolkits of recovery. And we also talk about the importance of the other component of that, not just the medical intervention, but also the psychosocial interventions that help us build a recovery that's worth having, worth being in, where alcohol or other substances just lose their calling or their interest. We don't want to give away what we've created by building these things and, and about the importance of getting the skills to be able to, to build that stuff. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and I hope you get a lot out of it. And let's just go ahead and start it. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is a world-renowned scientist and clinician, Dr. Fopicelli. And his research led to the discovery of naltrexone to treat alcohol addiction. And I'm just excited to talk to you and learn more about this and your insights on addiction treatment and everything like that. So first, I want to know more about you. So please introduce yourself. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure being on the podcast. So I've been interested in addiction treatment and research for about 40 years now, and I got my interest when I was a medical student and I was working with individuals who were returning from Vietnam and they had addiction to alcohol. 
And many of them have a story where while they were in Vietnam, they were using opiates. But when they came back to the United right. States, they started using more alcohol. And for a long time, I've been interested in the relationship between stress, alcohol drinking, and opiates. And so I took that observation into the laboratory where I studied it in rats. In rats. So really going right into the brain science of it, I guess. So tell me a little bit about that. So you started to see this relationship. And so what? how did you take that into the laboratory? What kind of study did you do or studies that you've done that helps show that relationship? So I was in the MD-PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. So I went back and forth between doing research and also seeing patients. So the one helped inform the other. And at the time I was doing research with giving rats uh, uncontrollable trauma, observing its effects in terms of other physical disorders or behavioral disorders. So I was working in a laboratory where we stressed rats and we looked at their response to things like uh, their ability to fight cancer. For example, in one study, we gave rats tumor injection and the rats that had the uncontrollable stress died at a much higher rate than the rats who had no stress at all. And interestingly, wow. the rats who could control the stress actually were able to fight the cancer better than rats who had no stress. And so the ability to control the trauma had a very profound effect in terms of one's ability to fight something like cancer. Would that be would that be like when you say control the stress, would that be like resiliency or something like that? So they had stress, but they were able to cope with it. And that made them actually even stronger than the non-stressed rats. Exactly right. So we did the way we did the study was that the rats were yoked to each other. So the electric shock would come on and one rat could shuttle back and forth and turn the shock off. And when the rat did this, it turned it off for that individual rat who had control. But for another rat that got the exact same amount of stress, amount of exact same amount of electric shock, but could not control it. And what we found that there was profound differences between the rats that could control the stress versus rats that could not control the stress. And the rats who could control the stress later were able to fight cancers better. They were able to learn better. They were able to resist trauma better than rats who had no exposure with the stress at all. Wow. And this goes back to the idea, at least what I think is trauma is a big part of addiction and, and the development of addiction, I would think. That's my thought. Exactly right. And so I wanted to take this phenomena and look at alcohol drinking and to, to see right. how it related. And the original theory that I had was that the rats that got the uncontrollable stress would increase their alcohol drinking more than the rats who had controllable stress or no stress at all. So I did this study and sure enough, that's what happened. But, you know, it was very surprising to me in the way that it happened. And like most things in science, it doesn't proceed with a eureka moment, but it proceeds with a, wow, that's funny moment. And right, in the like study, weird. we found... Yes, that's weird, exactly. And so what I found was really surprising was that on days where I gave the rats the stress, the rats that didn't have control over the stress, they did not increase their alcohol drinking. But on the weekends, that's when they increased their drinking. And the way I designed the study was I gave the rats stress during the week so I could have the weekends off. I didn't have to come into the laboratory and stress the rats so I right. could have the weekend off myself. But I still came in to measure how much alcohol they drank on those days. 
And that's when there was a dramatic increase in alcohol drinking after the stress was over. Wow, that's really interesting. That's really fascinating. So they they would have all the stress and they wouldn't do it while the stress was happening. It would be like they knew this weekend was coming. Sounds very familiar. Knew this weekend was coming. And then all of a sudden, that's when all of that increased. Exactly. And, and then I did other experiments to show that if the rat lived in a box where they received the stress, they didn't increase their alcohol drinking very much. But when they were taking taken out of that environment and put in a safe environment, that's when they increased their alcohol drinking. So as the, the wow. weekends were made for Michelob type effect. Yeah, and, um, that's totally, totally right. Yeah. And, and, wow. and when I looked at humans, often humans drink after a stressful day or on weekends. That's when happy hour is. That's when a lot of the drinking occurs. And so I wondered why that was the case and how did that relate to the veterans who, when they were in Vietnam and exposed to trauma, when they came back from that trauma, that's when their alcohol drinking dramatically increased. So I wanted to know how that all related and how that related to opiate. And how does that start to like all connect together when we start to look at like treatment and working with individuals who are struggling with alcohol? So I, I suspected, I, I hypothesized that what happens is when you're exposed to uncontrollable trauma, your brain releases endogenous endorphins, endogenous morphine-like molecules that help kill the pain. So people are familiar with the fight or flight response. I call it the fight or flight, no right. pain from bite response that you get the endorphin release. And then when the stress is over and the endorphins begin to return back to normal levels, the person goes through a relative deficiency in terms of their opiate receptors. And I also discovered at the time that alcohol can increase the release of endogenous opiates. And so during the time when the rats were experiencing relief, they were going through sort of withdrawal from their own endogenous opiates, and they could compensate for that by drinking alcohol. Got it. They actually were able to increase it. They had the stress, but since it would go down because the stress is over, the alcohol would help increase that, that feeling. And when we talk about that, how would you say that in like terms of like, how does that experience in the body, if that makes sense? Like yes. when, when someone like actually goes through that process, we can understand these movements of neurochemicals, but what does that look like in, I guess, practicality? Exactly. So when I talk to patients, a lot of times when people have a very stressful week, on the weekends, they just feel like sitting on the couch eating potato chips. They don't feel like doing anything. They feel blah. And right. For some folks, when they drink, it helps improve their mood, it increases their energy, makes them feel better. For other people, they might use jogging or something else, but they, they just go through a period where they just don't feel well. They don't feel like doing anything. And that's probably withdrawal from your own endogenous opiates. Right. So this is all, all taking place in the body. And then someone will ingest this substance alcohol for one to kind of shift that all that neurochemistry and i'm assuming the body knows that on some deep level like it just does it it's not like we consciously say oh uh, this is what's going to happen i'm going to increase my endorphins or you know my endogenous opiates it just happens it starts to the body knows the body knows and, and what the person experiences is that they feel kind of lousy and then they discover something that makes them feel better. 
For some people, it might be other behaviors. It could be jogging. It could be social interactions. For some people, it may be drinking alcohol. And then they feel better. So they begin to develop a connection between feeling better by using alcohol during these weekends when they feel kind of crappy. Now, the problem with addiction is that the behavior, drinking alcohol or any other behavior, makes you feel better temporarily, but it sows the seeds for the next episode where you need to use the drug again. And so it creates an addictive cycle so that you may feel better temporarily, but that process then gets the endorphins going again. But when the endorphins start to drop again, the person feels lousy. And I should point out that we now know that the endorphin effect that I'm talking about also interacts with dopamine. So when the endorphins go up, it helps increase dopamine levels and that helps to motivate behavior. So someone who's not necessarily motivated to drink alcohol initially over time develops a motivation to use alcohol in this way. And is that because like, you know, the person who's not drinking, they may go running or something and they get that relief. They feel a little bit better but is the drop-off not as intense? So when you drink alcohol, the drop-off is higher. So that creates an even stronger need for it next time. Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Yes, that's exactly right. That certain behaviors, you get a nice gradual increase in say the endorphin levels and then a gradual decrease. So you don't feel that big change in terms of your overall response. You, you don't feel that terrible withdrawal. So you, you you might exercise, feel better temporarily, and not have a terrible drop-off. But certain behaviors or certain drugs can create a big increase in the endorphins and a bigger drop-off. So that creates conditions where the person is more likely to get addicted. So you have this bigger swing, you have this bigger high, and then this bigger dip. And with the with the bigger dip, you need more a normal activity isn't going to maybe normal activity, maybe running or talking with peers or something like that. Isn't going to give you quite that, that lift that you need to feel better. That's exactly right. And, and so I hypothesize then that I should be able to block post-stress drinking in rats by blocking the opiate receptor. So right in the laboratory, then I gave rats naltrexone and I found that the rats that got the naltrexone did not increase their alcohol drinking after stress. And that led me to do research in humans to see if it worked in humans. And sure enough, I did a study at the VA hospital where I gave people naltrexone or placebo. And I found that the uh, subjects who had the naltrexone no longer enjoyed drinking alcohol so much. It just didn't hit the spot for them anymore. And so even if they had a slip, the slip didn't turn into a relapse. Because it didn't, it didn't quite bring that, that high as high. Exactly. So instead of getting highs and lows, you get more of a moderating effect, maybe a little bit of a mild effect, a little mild high, a little mild low, but it doesn't lead to that addictive cycle where you need more and more to get the same effect. And so that's what the naltrexone does. It helps to moderate the highs and lows. So you, so it helps break that addictive cycle. And this is something that a medication that they can take on like a daily basis to kind of even that out. And so does that slowly untie that association to alcohol as a relief, or is that still something they have to continually watch once that pattern is developed? 
So again, the person's freed up from having to use the alcohol. So the alcohol becomes less of an obsession with them. And so they begin to find other things that give them joy in life or the natural reinforcers, the natural rewards. And so when I use naltrexone and I can give it as a pill that you take every day, or I can give it as an extended release injection the last month that people find other things that give them rewards in life. And for me, that's what recovery is all about is the freedom from that addictive cycle so that you can enjoy other things in life. Right. So you're not just into that obsession, which, you know, then everything else in your life starts to lose importance or you don't nurture, you don't nurture relationships. You don't nurture things that are meaningful to you. You just nurture the addiction. Yeah, that's exactly right. It begins to, you know, uh, you know, consume your whole life. And so you begin to neglect other responsibilities, work responsibilities, family responsibilities, social relationships. You begin to feel awful because you feel trapped. You feel out of control with your drinking. You know, over time, that becomes your whole life. And so by breaking right. that cycle, the medicine then gives a person a chance to find other things in life to give them a sense of purpose and social connectedness. And as you do that, and that's where the, the therapy comes in, that it helps people right. really recover their lives so that they don't want to go back to drinking. So I have patients who've been on naltrexone for a year or two, and, and over time, they, they can hardly remember the time when they were addicted to alcohol. It just seems like a distant memory. And they come in to see me, and they're dealing with other issues like getting along with their spouse or work difficulties, and, and that's the issues that they come to talk to me about. But I'm, I'm so right. proud when they come back and they say that they've got new promotions. They come back with new right. babies from new relationships that they've had. That's right. what recovery is all about. So the medicine is very helpful, at least initially, to break that addictive cycle. But true recovery, I believe, right. is when people get the freedom to live their full life. Right. To be able to really do all the things that they didn't do in their addiction. So my mind goes to people who are trying to stop drinking alcohol and they don't necessarily have access to naltrexone or they don't want to use it or whatever, for whatever reason, they have to weather that dopamine drop mm -hmm. on their own in a way, which is that real challenging phase of, of recovery, the first year or two of recovery to start to rewire their brain. This makes it even more challenging yeah, so many people have recovered from alcohol addiction or other addictions without using something like naltrexone. But the way they do it is by completely abstaining from any sampling of the alcohol, because once they have right. the alcohol, again, it will set in motion that addictive cycle. So if you can manage to stay away from the alcohol, then you stay away from that addictive cycle. But often people find that that process is difficult because they may go to a wedding where other people are drinking and seeing other people drinking causes the brain to start to crave the alcohol and the person will have a hard time resisting the urge to drink. And so the person needs to be constantly on guard to avoid high risk situations. And that consumes a lot of time and energy too. And again, recovery right. is about being free of that, not spending all your time worrying about not drinking. So that's why I like to use something like naltrexone to help in recovery. And I, I've had patients who recovered without naltrexone, but after a year, they're still thinking about alcohol. They're very proud right. of their recovery day. They're very proud of going to meetings. Right. They're doing a really good job with not drinking, but still the alcohol consumes a large part of their life because they're working hard to avoid not to not relapsing. 
versus some of the folks on naltrexone who after a year, their life has changed. They don't think about the alcohol anymore. They're not, uh, it doesn't become a part of their obsession and they're thinking about other things in life to give them pleasure. So that's why I like to use something like naltrexone to aid in the recovery process. My question is, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think, because I have clients like what you're talking exactly like that. They they get a year or two years of, of recovery from maybe alcohol and it's still on their mind. They haven't had any alcohol, but it's still there. But what you're saying is with naltrexone, that starts to ease off. And I'm wondering what your thought is about why why that is. I mean, they're both been away from alcohol for two years, right? They haven't ingested it. So they they are not getting back in that cycle, so to speak, but yet the cravings are still there. The desire, the all of that. Yeah. So without getting too technical into neurobiology of it, I think the naltrexone helps to make things more even keel. So the alcohol doesn't produce as big a high nor as big a low. And also other behaviors don't produce as big a high or as big a low. So a person feels more in control. It acts more like a natural reward, something like food, where when we're hungry, we eat. But then as we eat, our motivation to eat goes down. So it, it's, right. it has sort of a homeostatic process that eating reduces the motivation to want to eat. And that's how natural rewards work. Engaging in the behavior reduces the need to keep engaging in that behavior. Whereas for right. addictive substances, engaging in the behavior increases the need to engage in that behavior. I think it has to do with the pharmacokinetics of what happens with dopamine. If dopamine levels rise quickly and drop quickly, that sets the occasion for a person to need to go back to using that substance or that behavior to get that same effect. Right, right. So does this where like there's that abstinence model of treatment and then there's moderation management? How does that play out here then, especially with naltrexone and kind of dampening that reward system, but maybe you maybe you might engage in the behavior, but it's just not it's just not going to bring about any of that high. Yeah, that's right. So for most people, I recommend that if you have severe alcohol use disorder, probably the best strategy is abstinence. And for me, the people who have severe alcohol use disorder typically get that nice endorphin effect when they drink. And they miss that. And so on naltrexone, they don't get that effect. And the motivation to use alcohol then just goes away. Why would I bother spending money on alcohol if I'm not going to get the endorphin effect? So even if they intend to moderate their drinking, they typically just stop drinking altogether because they're not really getting what they wanted. And so right. they typically just stop drinking, period. But I usually don't make that a requirement for many people when they start treatment, because I want to engage people in treatment in the first place. That if people drop out of treatment, they're not likely to have a good result. But so I'll, I'll ask people to, if you're going to drink, make sure you don't have more than four drinks in a setting for females, five drinks or more for a male. And if you do that, then we can continue to follow your progress. And most people on naltrexone find it after one drink or so, they, they're not even interested in drinking. I have patients who walked into a bar, someone poured them a drink, they had a couple of sips, and then they left the, the drink right on the bar. And they said they never would do that before, before naltrexone. They would never leave alcohol at the bar, but they just didn't have a taste for it anymore. And over time, they just generally quit. 
this kind of talks to how much of our, uh, I, I just want to call it our lizard brain, our very yes. primitive mm -hmm. brain operates a, and motivates so much of our behavior and so much of our uh, decision making that, you know, tools like this can can help us with that, because in some ways, that sometimes seems to drive the bus anyway. Yeah, especially when it comes to making short term decisions in your life. Often the right. lizard brain or the emotional brain sort of controls our behavior of what we're going to do over the next five minutes. Our logical brain sort of controls our behavior of what we want to do tomorrow, the next day, next year. When I go to bed at night, I set my alarm for seven o'clock in the morning because I want to wake up early. But when it's 7 a.m. the next day, I keep hitting the snooze button because I want to sleep. The emotional right. brain controls the immediate behavior. The night before, I really am motivated to wake up early. And that's important to keep in mind. Right. And, and to understand how, how that works so we can make better decisions. We can strategize if we understand our, our emotional brain a little bit better. Exactly. Rather than fight our emotional brain, it's just important to understand how it works. And what we can do, for example, if I want to wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning and I know my lizard brain is going to want to hit the snooze mm -hmm. button, I make other precautions. Like I set the alarm across the room so I have to get up out of bed. By the time I get over there, then it's like, well, I'm up anyway. I might as well stay up. So you can do things that if you know how your emotional brain works, your logical brain can take necessary steps to prevent you from being sabotaged by your emotional brain. I reminded the story of Ulysses, who, when he was returning back from the, the war, wanted to go past the island where the sirens were singing. And right. he knew that the, the sailors would wreck their boats when they heard the sirens sing. So his emotional brain wanted to steer the boat toward the, the rocks, but he knew this was going to happen ahead of time. So he had his crew put wax in their ears and the crew tied him to the mast of the ship. And he told the crew, don't listen to any of my orders until we're well past the island. So he's able to go right. past the island, hear the sirens sing, and he didn't relapse. He didn't crash his boat because he knew ahead of time how his emotional brain was going to react. So he took steps ahead of time to help prevent that. So one of the things that helps you is you can use medicines to help you so the, the sirens don't cause you to crash your boat. You can use social supports to help you. But it's important to work together with your emotional brain and the cognitive brain so that they're working in concert to do things which are in your long-term best interest, not always what makes me feel good now. Right. And and this kind of gets to the to the next part I want to talk to you about, because not only, you know, we have naltrexone and, and that's that's part of the picture, like you said, but there's this whole whole other social support system that has to happen, too. And you say that, you know, like you said earlier, that's recovery. Right. That's if you've lived your life in in an addiction and it's gotten all your attention, then this other part has to start to to happen. And you can't. Both of them have to work together, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Again, someone who doesn't have all these things going on in their life, I think, is always vulnerable to going back to using a drug or a certain behavior that there's still something missing in their life. And most of us right. like the same things. We like social connections and we like to do something purposeful, meaningful in our lives. And people right. who establish that are much less risk of going back to relapse. Often they don't have really a desire to want to use a drug anymore. That seems like a, a distant past memory that they're past and, and they're moving on with their lives. 
Yeah. And they're building a meaningful life. That's what recovery is all about, building a meaningful life. Yes. But often what I, I would say is when we're in, in addiction or we've had trauma in our own past, we may lose those, we may not have those skills on knowing how to build a meaningful life or have those social relationship skills in order to build a meaningful life. And we need to to get those skills, right? We need Absolutely. to be able to develop those skills. Absolutely. And you need to have hope that you can achieve those yeah. goals. Some people have completely lost hope that they, they have not had it in their life before. So one of the very first steps I like to do in treatment is to give people the hope that they can have those things, to allow them to dream of what's possible. And once people begin to dream, then it's much easier to teach them the skills of how to get there. And, and so they do need the psychosocial support to develop the skills and then show how the skills are working for them to achieve their longer term goals. And that's why the medicines by themselves, I don't see as the answer, but the medicines combined with the psychosocial support, I think helps people really return to a full life. Right. And this brings us to another topic because you've also developed, a, you've leveraged technology to be mm -hmm. able to help people in this process. And so I want to I want to talk about that because you have a, a digital assistant, uh, Vorvita, right? That can help people in this process. And I want to talk about how did that come to be and why create that and and yeah, that's my question. Sure. Yeah. So what I found pretty early on in my research with humans is that naltrexone worked great for the people who took it, but a fair percent of people were not consistent with taking the medicine and they had generally had a poor outcome. So I asked myself, what can I do to help enhance people's adherence with taking the medicine? So I used a behavioral interviewing you know, to design a program that I could teach healthcare professionals how to use. Um, right. The way the motivational interviewing has been set up in the past is that people need to be PhD psychologists and go through specialized training. And I knew in the medical field, people were not gonna be interested in doing that. So I developed right. a scaled down model that I call the Brenda approach, which was very easy for people to learn, which involves the various steps that you use to help engage people in treatment, get people to adhere in treatment. And I actually wrote a book about it. I, I devised manuals, which was used in various studies. So the people who do research in the area like to use the Brenda approach because by enhancing adherence, it helps you to show that the medicine is effective or not. So it works right. really great in academic settings People were interested in using it and it worked great. But when I tried to train healthcare professionals who were seeing patients, it did not work so great that they were too busy having to see their six patients per hour, that sort of thing, that they didn't want right. to spend the time talking with people. And then when right. I went to yeah. other, other counselors, often they found resistance that they thought that the work that they were doing was more important than integrating what they were doing with the medications. And so I said, what else can we do? And so there's a whole new developing field. Again, I didn't develop this. It's already been developed and it continues to be developed called digital therapeutics in which people use evidence-based behavioral treatments, particularly CBT therapy, and they present it on right. an online program. So the, the program becomes your counselor, becomes your coach. And it delivers material to you to help you to learn various coping skills so that you, 
You can learn techniques to cope with craving. You can learn techniques to help reduce your stress. You can learn techniques right. to how to deal with people. And so the programs have been used to treat a variety of disorders. They've been used to treat medical disorders like diabetes. They've been used to treat people who have insomnia. And they, I'm working now with a program to help people with opiate use disorders. We're actually doing a research study right now to, to wow. be used in conjunction with uh, medication-assisted treatment to help people with opiate use disorders. There's a couple of programs that are available for alcohol use disorder, and the one that I'm working with is called Vorvita, and that's a digital therapeutic that combines a CBT therapy, and what it does, it, it's kind of interesting. It makes it more than just, say, an app, a typical app that you might use. Right. It, it, it teaches you the cognitive behavioral skills, but it does it in an intelligent way. It has a AI, an AI component built into it so that when it delivers material to you, it asks for feedback from you. So it asks you, was right. this helpful? Would you like more information about this? Was this not helpful? Would you like to try something else? And so I've used the program, and it's really interesting because uh, sometimes I go in there as a really resistant patient where I'm not interested in treatment and, and it'll teach me some mindfulness techniques. And then I'll, right, and I'll say, right. is that helpful? I'll say, no, that was a bunch of crap. I don't believe in any of that stuff. <laughs> right, and so right, it says, right. okay, well, then I won't teach you that anymore. Let's go on to something else. So it modifies its behavior to give me content that's specific for what I'm interested in and what's helpful for me. Right. And we're all, we're all different and we all, you know, different things work for different people, different, there's so many different ways that we have to have that flexibility. Do you find that with this, that people are more engaged or adjunct, it adds a, if they're in some kind of treatment, it adds like another element to it that gets them into that process, even when they're resistant or they um, are adherent to it, I guess, or will it participate more? Yeah, exactly. So I've used it together with the therapy that I, I, I work with patients, and it has certain advantages. For example, you can use it anytime, anywhere. So it could be two o'clock right. in the morning and the person's experiencing craving. Rather than call me, they go back to the Vervita program and learn some skills on how to cope with craving. So it's something that's always available to them. And, uh, right. and, and for some people, I notice that uh, what they tell the program is sort of different than what they tell me that for me, everything is going great. They want to give me a positive glowing report, but sometimes things are not going as well as, as they let on right. and, and they need that extra help. And, and they can do it in a way that they don't have to feel shame or guilty about that the craving is high or they, they're, they're, they're struggling. And so the program can right. be helpful that way to reduce uh, shame and guilt. So yeah, I, I, I use it in conjunction with the therapy. Some people use it independently. So Revita, you can use it independently. And I think that's mostly for people who maybe don't have a full-blown alcohol use disorder, but they have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And that's right. important to keep in mind, too, because there's new guidelines about what's problematic drinking, what's heavy drinking. That The new guidelines suggest that more than two drinks a day for guys and one drink a day for females can be a problem. And, and so people are beginning to look at their drinking a little bit more closely to see if it's beginning to creep up and be a problem. And I've noticed that right. during the pandemic, for many people, the drinking was beginning to creep up a bit. And so yeah, they're beginning to reestablish. Yes. So they're beginning to reestablish the relationship with alcohol and say, well, maybe I need to do something about it. 
and they don't have the full blown alcohol use disorder, but if they continue on that path, they could develop that. And so it's good to sort of nip right. it in the bud with a program like Fordita. Before you create that feedback loop, that that addictive feedback loop and that dopamine feedback loop, don't exactly. do that to your brain. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. That You don't want it to consume your whole life. And if you begin to see warning signs, you can do something early on in treatment. It's, it's like treating diabetes. We don't wait till the yeah. person has diabetic retinopathy and uh, peripheral neuropathy before you treat the disorder. We look to see the body's response to a glucose load and see if that's dysfunctional, to see if the glucose levels are too high. And then we intervene early to help prevent problems. Too often in the addiction field, we wait till a person hits rock bottom till they have all these horrible consequences. And then we offer treatment. For some people, that's too late. They haven't made it. For other people, it's very time consuming and, and they find it difficult to engage in treatment. But if we could get people to recognize the early signs that your relationship with alcohol or some other drug might be a problem for you, I think it would be much easier to turn the ship around before it becomes a problem. Right. It would be, it would be much easier. It's not, it's not quite as a, a heavy lift. And then also getting these skills, what I hear you saying, you know, we can use these drugs and these medical interventions to help, but there's this other component of building a, a meaningful life. And we sometimes need to develop skills to do that, that we don't have, and that these kind of things can can help us do that. So the more meaningful our life is to us, the less we go to destructive behaviors that that destroy that because it's we don't want to. We, we want a meaningful life. We want connections. We, we want to have all that. I mean, that's exactly right. I, I think too often we assume that people are willfully choosing a life in which they engage in bad behavior. But when people can see that there's an option for them where they can get good things in life without engaging in that behavior, where they can have meaningful relationships, when they can have a purpose in life, they don't want to return to that kind of behavioral lifestyle. But they need to see that that's possible and then teach people the skills how to get there and then support them along the way. Right. And understand that addiction is a a medical issue. I mean, that goes back to the old paradigm of just uh it's a moral issue uh willpower you should just have willpower you should have your 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 moral compass should take this all away and that's just not not the case no that's that's true and and too often we assume that there's something fundamentally different about people with addictions than people without addictions and and i don't believe that that's the case we have the same kind of biology our biology biology is not that dissimilar but some people, right. unfortunately, find that they're exposed to certain kinds of events. Maybe it's early childhood trauma. Maybe it's a dose of a drug that affects their body in a particular way. This sort of helps to engage that process where using the drug, engaging in that behavior, increases the need to use it more. And an analogy I like to use for people who maybe do not have addiction themselves, but to understand it is, I, I use the analogy that I can I have right now, which is, even though I don't have an addiction to drugs, alcohol, I have a little problem with eating these little pretzel nuggets that have peanut butter right. inside of them. I love those. Those are things. really good, by the way. I have those a are really good. right under my desk right now. And I also have containers that I've used up. It reminds me of the little crack files I used to see in the 1980s. 
right, you know, right. in the uh, cracks of the sidewalk. So, yep. so when I start eating them, my motivation to eat more of them increases. And actually, the reason right. why they're under my desk right now is my uh, uh, stepson has a problem with this, too. And he asked me to hide them from him. And so that's his way of coping with it. He needs to be hidden from them. But I noticed that I can start the day without craving these little pretzel nuggets. I'm perfectly fine. But when I eat a couple, I need to eat more. And that process for me lasts for about 20, 30 minutes, and then it gradually goes away. So there's a 20, 30 minute period where I want to eat more of those nuggets. Now, if I distract myself, I can come back and my craving is gone. But for 20, 30 right. minutes after I eat a couple of these things, my craving for the nuggets is high. That's the addictive cycle. So when people, some people, when they drink a couple of drinks, the motivation to have the fourth drink is higher than the motivation to have the first drink. When people use right. stimulants, it's very hard to control how much stimulant you use. If you bought $40 worth, you're going to use $40 worth. And so right. that's addictive cycle is what gets people trapped. And we have to show people that there's a way to get out of that addictive cycle and then to find other things in life, maybe healthier snacks, for example, that don't cause that. And right. that's what recovery is all about. Yeah. It's like building that and, and working with our own neurobiology to create the life we want. Like you said earlier, being strategic, tying yourself to the mass, so to speak, and, and being able to kind of strategize all of that. And if we understand the brain and we understand this a little bit more, we can be more strategic. Yeah, very true. And it's important to strive for understanding as opposed to blame. You know, so many yeah. people are trying to, they're blaming the drugs or they're blaming the individual or blaming society. Let's try to understand how all this works so that we can better intervene. That's what I've been doing over the past 40 years by looking at research and looking at data and constantly yeah. learning and, and often being surprised by the results, but learning yeah. from the process. Yeah. And that, and I think I, I can hear in your voice just the, the compassion that you, you have for anyone out there who's struggling. It starts with that compassion, understanding, empathy. Let's learn and we will all grow through this process of understanding. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to, over the past 40 years to work with people who've shared their stories with me. And I've tried to help them move forward with their lives and they've shared their stories. And, and it's been a very rewarding experience for me. I, I don't understand why some people in the medical profession don't enjoy working with people who have addictions. For me, it's been an incredibly worthwhile experience and enjoyable and, and often with a good result. Yeah, uh, the same way. I, I love working in this field as well. And to me, it's really inspiring. I see such amazing things happen when people are in recovery and and get the tools they need and the support they need and the lives they build out of it. It's It's inspiring. And not just for that particular person, but for the whole family members and the whole social yeah. network. They come back totally. very appreciative. And there's no other yeah. area in medicine that is so rewarding, I believe, that really turns people's lives around. I mean, I've helped people with cardiovascular disease, which is great. Their blood pressure is under control and that sort of thing. And they show me pictures of their grandkids. But with addictions, they it's, show me their grandkids that were possible because they were in recovery. 
So for me, there's yeah. no other field that's more rewarding than working with people with addictions. So I've, I've loved the field and I've been honored to, to be able to share their stories. Absolutely. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on onto the podcast. I have one more question I'd like to ask at the end of the podcast. Sure. And that's someone out there struggling or maybe a family member struggling and you'd want to tell them one thing. What would you want to what would you want to say to them? There's hope. You can get there's better. Hope. There's hope and it can get better. I, I love it. How can people find out more about you if they want to connect with you or they have questions? How can they find you? Yeah, I guess if you're interested in that Vorvita thing, Vorvita has a website, Vorvita.com. I'm at the Institute of Addiction Medicine. You can always Google me. I'm, I'm all over the internet and yeah, some of yeah, the research and some of the other things I've done. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk with people. I, I have the Institute of Addiction Medicine that I've set up to help work with healthcare professionals and to share information about them and um, uh, share information with the general public. I have students who are working with me. I enjoy teaching and and working with people in the field. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to share anything that I know with other people and, and to help the field move forward. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind. I appreciate your time and, and just you sharing your knowledge and wisdom and compassion with uh, all of my listeners. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to, to help get the message out. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can check that out and get all the information there. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, leave a review in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. I really do appreciate it. I really do love all the reviews that The Addicted Mind has gotten. And uh, that's really meaningful to me to see that uh, this podcast is, is helping a lot of people and people are getting support and finding it valuable. So that means a lot to me. So for all the people that have done that, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That really does help The Addicted Mind get found and creates a lot of exposure for The Addicted Mind. So I really appreciate it. All right. With that, I hope you have a wonderful day today and I will talk to you on the next episode. Take care. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.